My first autism episode was by far one of the two most requested topics to date, and it was well received by all of you in the lovely Just Dumb Enough audience. But in talking to listeners, many people still wanted more. Something even more personal. So now I'm revisiting the topic with an all-new expert in a different angle. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Deanne Hampton. Deanne has been mother to two twins for 35 years now. Even though they're grown, Deanne had a rocky start to say the least when they received multiple diagnoses at a young age. The road was a hard one to travel, not knowing that autism was at the heart of the issues, and Deanne got a lot of advice that did more harm than good. She covers some of the different diagnoses of autism and its spectrum of disorders, as well as the rise of the neurodiverse population and also what parents may find helpful in their day-to-day. She also references some products, none of which are sponsors of the show, and also are not things that I can recommend or advise on with any level of confidence. But that's why I have experts on the show, and always recommend you leave here and research the things that interest you on your own. This is a great standalone episode, but I also recommend checking out the first time we covered it on the show with Toby Rates. That first interview covers a lot of the basic terms and conditions that come up in today's conversation that may be unfamiliar to you if you don't already have some level of knowledge on the condition. Let's learn some tips and tricks. Welcome to the show, Deanne Hampton. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to have you with us. Why don't you give an introduction for the audience about who you are and what you do? Oh, my goodness. Well, where do I start? I uh, was a mother, a vocalist in my dad's band, and a uh, part-time account accounting uh, specialist for years and years while raising my children. Um, They were my top priority, Uh, beautiful twins, boy and girl, and they're now 35 years old. So I've had a lot of experience. Um, They ended up showing signs of of, uh, ADHD, Tourette's syndrome, and OCD at the age of uh, 15 months. And uh, we didn't understand what was happening. And we weren't told that it was autism. So we were kind of flying blind through our lives, uh, raising our children, and uh, we used our hand-me-down parenting skills that did not work with these children. <laughs> you cannot discipline them, or they'll discipline you right back, is what we learned. And um, so, in the in the interim, when they were about three years old, our daughter was having some really uh, difficult behavioral issues. And so we went to a psychologist and that psychologist said for us to get tough with her and to ignore her because she was just attention seeking. And we only discovered years later that that was, you know, some poor advice and that she uh, she told us uh, just not too long ago that she felt abandoned by those by those uh, responses that we had to her. So it's really um 
been my mission for the last 10 years since they were 25. And my son ended up um, sick with uh, some comorbidities to autism. Uh, He had kidney failure and he still does. He's on um, dialysis. So I've been on a 10 year trek to try to find out why and how all of this happened. Um, And what I found is um, I believe can be very helpful to other people uh, in autism families. And so I've just basically, I sat down and wrote my book and then I dug in, I started a nonprofit that um, will assist families in providing early intervention to their children uh, between the ages of, of two and six. And uh, I'm really excited about that because there are product services and just simple information that that parents and grandparents can can receive and utilize on their own and and gain confidence in knowing and understanding their child or grandchild with with autism. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, this is an education show, so let's let's start right off the bat with you know what you learned and what this journey was like. Oh my goodness. Well, I learned number 1 that uh the nervous system itself has a memory. And the nervous system remembers things before our minds can remember. And in that journey, I also learned that the immune system is, uh, when it's not resilient, then you can, then the person cannot be resilient as well. And they're not resilient to um, environmental things, but they're also not resilient to emotional things. That's what part of the rigidity of autism spectrum disorder as it, you know, as it shows, um, ends up being. I also learned that um, people with Asperger's syndrome, uh, especially women, uh, according to studies that were done in the UK, they have been misdiagnosed for years. There's actually a, a lost generation of women who should have received a diagnosis of um, of Asperger's or autism, and they didn't. Instead, because of the chameleonism that's involved in, in those behaviors in women and girls, they were called uh, mentally ill and treated thusly. And so um, it, it ends up being a, you know, <laughs> a misdiagnosis and a maltreatment for how many women? We, d- we don't even know, but um, it was uh, 700,000 women in the UK alone who who uh, answered the survey as, you know, possibly being more toward Asperger's than being toward, and of course, they call it now uh, level one autism and uh, officially, but then, of course, we also have the communities of, of millennial uh, adults who uh, say, no, we're not autistic, we're neurodivergent or we're neurodiverse. So we have a lot of input from, from these adults that are, that are coming in and saying, you know, this is, this is what it should have been. And um, this is how we should have been treated, but, you know, we can't go back and change it through time. But what we can do moving forward is make sure that, that those appropriate diagnoses are made and that the appropriate treatments are given. Yeah. Is there like a list of early signs or, you know, things you commonly look for now that we know, you know, significantly more hopefully than we used to so that we don't 
misdiagnose people. Yeah, well, unfortunately, our our medical systems are kind of behind the times, and it's not really their fault. It's the training that they receive and don't receive. Um, but, um, you know, the fact that the parents haven't been deferred to, you know, as far as as far as being the experts on their lives, their bodies, their children's lives, their children's bodies, all of that has, has really uh, kind of messed things up because what we need is to be able to to be the experts of our own lives and be the experts of our own health. And in doing so, we can we can bring in um, new observations and new subjective evidence, you know, which is is just as important as objective evidence. And uh, the disorders, the primary disorders that I discovered through through just my children and uh, talking to other parents and things like that, uh, being on groups on Facebook, they're all talking about um, how their child won't sleep, they won't eat um, except for certain foods that are not really healthy, and they have behavioral issues. You know, they unpredictable behavioral issues, and so those are really the three primary disorders, eating disorders, sleeping disorders, and behavioral disorders. So if we can get families to in a position to where they know what to do for their children to address those three primary disorders, then they won't, then it won't stem further into a higher level uh, autism diagnosis. Because what um, that represents is these kids, they end up getting becoming defensive and they live their lives in defense mechanisms, you know, and then it becomes survival because to them and their just uh, deep sensitivities, um, they feel like the world is hostile from the, from the time they can remember. And so, you know, and that's not even if their parents are abusive or anything like that, if they have abuse in their family or what have you, but there are so many parents who are just scratching their heads and saying, no, it couldn't be related to, to uh, trauma or anything like that because I didn't abuse my child. And what I'm saying is, is from that child's perspective, simple things can feel abusive. They can feel traumatic to them. I'll give you an example. I, I, uh, when I was two years old, my parents took me to Disneyland and I'm sitting there between my mother and my father on this planter thing and looking up at the uh, fireworks. And I was scared to death. Because I thought those fireworks, because I have such an attention uh, attention to detail, uh, I thought those fireworks were literally going to come and hit me because they were falling. <laughs> and so, you know, and none of them understood, nobody around me understood why, why I was so frightened or anything. So that's just one example, you know, of, of how the adults in the room can see things so much differently than the tiny person. <laughs> that's there trying to process the world and, and has a disadvantage in being able to process it and being able to communicate and express feelings and, uh, you know, because their nerves are affected, their nerves are damaged, their auditory nerves can be damaged, their ocular nerves can be damaged. Um, and so now there are ways to, uh, to address those as well. And so that's what I, where I really hope to serve families. And this is one of those that's hard to see if you're not looking at a full picture, if you're looking at things individually, you know, you go to 
your doctor, they get to see you for what, 10 minutes. It's not exactly like they're getting big lens pictures here. And then you're at home and you're maybe a, a first time parent or something like that. And you're like, wow, my kid's a really picky eater. And it's like, well, there might be more to it than that. It's just, you know, when you look at it and you're, you're a parent, I have to imagine your kid's a picky eater. You're like, this is really frustrating. I don't know how to feed my own child. And you don't look any deeper than that because you have this very like surface level concern. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. The, the food issue is a big issue. It was always for us and we never could figure out why, you know, why healthier foods were avoided at all costs. And then certain foods were accepted all of the time. And a lot of that has to do with tactile difficulties, putting something in your mouth and just the way it feels. And the way I understand that as well is because my daddy used to try to make me eat cream style corn when I was when I was little. And he finally got me to take one bite and I started gagging because it tactilely felt horrific to me. I just I wanted it out of my mouth. And so I think that's a that's a lot of it because they're so sensitive. They're sensitive to the way things feel, including the food in their mouth. And um, then there's also the uh, uh, pica, which is I, I can't even remember what it stands for, but it's basically where children start um, start eating sand or they start eating rocks or something. And um, it's I, I believe the answer has been found because it seems like um they they're trying to get minerals um so their bodies lack the minerals that they need in order to you know stop certain behaviors and uh that's when uh i discovered ion uh, intelligence of nature a uh, liquid supplement it's by zach dr zach bush and uh i used it for my grandson he's seven now but i used it for him um 30 minutes before meals, just a really small dose, starting out with a really small dose. And I'm telling you, I, I watched that little guy come out of no eye contact. I watched him become more aware, more focused. I watched him be able to um, train, you know, toilet train, everything. I, you know, it started happening. Um, one of the things that he had a problem with, with toilet training was he, he, the sound of the, the flush. He would cover his ears. And so um, I found uh, another product, which I want to offer both of these products through my nonprofit, uh, it, which is, uh, it's called uh, Brain Harmony. It's through integrated learning systems, and it's headphones that play frequencies that actually heal the auditory nerves. And when I used those headphones, those auditory nerves were, were healed as well. And so he stopped doing this. But what was also amazing was that he uh, he ended up being able to uh, to learn. He wanted to learn things again. He wanted to progress. And, you know, he had regressed prior. And so <laughs> this was all good news. So I'm just really hopeful that other families will be able to utilize these products and more and and uh, be able to see those differences in their children as well. Yeah. And some of this is that, you know, recovery, like you're talking about, if you've got a picky eater or they're, you know, they're engaging in pica and they're eating things that aren't supposed to be eaten, you know, just finding the little solution could make a lot of difference. You know, like we all 
get you know tired and cranky from time to time but if you're not sleeping like you're not resolving the issue and if there's an issue keeping you from going to sleep it's the same thing right like if there's something keeping you from eating because you can't engage with that much stimulus like yes underlying absolutely issues <laughs> And, and that was one of the benefits with the ion as well, is that um, he started recognizing uh, that he was hungry, which is also a thing, I guess, for a lot of children. Um, he started being able to recognize when he was hungry, and he also started wanting healthier foods because that ion actually helps um, smooth out the gut, and it makes it uh, uh, able to uh, absorb the nutrition correctly. So it's, it's just good all around. Also, I noticed um, behaviors with his sleep as well. I mean, he was able to sleep better taking the ion and getting better nutrition. That that's the key. Yeah. So are there things that parents should be on the lookout for? If you're like, I don't know, he has this reaction to, to broccoli and you're like, it might be, you know, a bit of an overstimulation. Is there things like that, that they can look out for? Well, basically, I mean, it's the, the biggies are, of course, sugar. <laughs> Sugar's a big one. Um, food coloring is a big one. Um, if food coloring is going to be used, like for birthday cakes or something like that, you can buy, you can now buy vegetable food color. And it's beautiful. It's just as bright as the other, only it doesn't have the same, um, it has a better quality of ingredients. So that those are, those are the two main ones that I can think of. Okay. Interesting. So what else can you look out for? I know we've kind of talked about food. What about, you know, you're talking about sleeping difficulties or were there any specific things in there to look out for? Well, they were talking about how parents were talking about how uh, their children or grandchild would, would keep them up all night and then the whole family would be, you know, dead tired the next day. <laughs> so, um, what what I did with my own children is I gave them melatonin. I just gave them a quarter of a melatonin, a quarter of a three milligram, and that would that did well for them. But it seems like now they're more resistant to the melatonin, and that's because there's a a um, there's an imbalance between melatonin and serotonin uh, in their bodies. And so that's why they get turned all around or they might sleep during the day. And part of it too is a need for safety a real need for safety and security at night because a lot of these kids have um, night terrors or uh, nightmares and, you know, they can't deal with them as, as readily as neurotypical children can. Um, they, they seem very real to them. And so then they, they avoid sleep because they want to avoid that terror. So um, taking care of those things, you know, and giving them the security that they need, even if it means, you know, I'm sorry, but even if it means putting a little cot next to your bed so that they have a secure place to feel, to feel your presence so that they know they're safe, it, it's going to help immensely. Yeah. And I have to assume some of that, you know, like they don't feel safe, they don't feel secure, they're not sleeping. So then they keep everyone else up. And that kind of creates, you know, like a feedback loop because now you're exhausted, you're tired, you're not as, you know, as willing or as patient to deal with some of the difficulties that might just seem otherwise, you know, trivial. Because you're like, oh, I'm I'm so exhausted, I cannot, you know, I can't take the extra time to parent my best. 
No, I don't think anybody can under those circumstances. I know, I know we had a difficult time. And again, we didn't even know what we were dealing with. We were flying completely blind. So, um, yeah, I, I've often said that, that to raising a special needs child is, is difficult and it's frustrating and it's lonely because you end up, you know, pushing everybody else aside to, to, to give all of your energy to that child but if you're if you're trying to discipline in the traditional ways, you're going the wrong direction. You need to stop and think about what you're doing and and really try to understand the, the child's point of view, you know, from that point of view that says I'm small and I'm I'm scared and I'm you know, I don't know what's happening around me. And I want to I want to understand what's happening around me and I need your help to do it. Is there a way to balance that so that you are, you know, because you're, I feel like as a parent and I'm not, but as a parent, you'd want to like, you know, give so much attention to your child and try and take care of their every need. Is there a level of overparenting that also goes into this? There is. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a time, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting though, because back in the fifties, they were giving barbiturates to, to mothers and children, you know, which was not good for anybody. I think that caused a lot of addiction and everything later on, <laughs> but uh, they, they called mothers refrigerator mothers back then, you know, the ones, the ones who had unruly or, or, you know, behavioral difficult child children. And then in the nineties, they were called helicopter moms or helicopter parents. But what wasn't understood was that there was an explosion in the early 90s of autistic children, you know, uh, regressing. So they ended up calling them helicopter moms because they didn't understand what was happening to all of us. Um, we had to keep a close eye on our children. They, you know, there's a there's a link between like Alzheimer's behavior PTSD behavior and, and autism. And, you know, that's the, the thing that says I'm going to open up the front door and go wandering out in the street. And I have no fear because I'm, I'm not aware enough to know what's going on. And uh, so, yeah, we had to, we had to keep a close eye on our kids <laughs> and we had to, we had to protect them from bullies in school and everything like that, because the kids in school didn't understand them. They were different. And, you know, they were smart, but they were different and um, people didn't like them because they, they, a lot of them actually feared smart people, especially after Ted Kaczynski did his stint, <laughs> which I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> so when you're talking about, you know, some of these social aspects as well, are there a lot of, you know, behavioral things that you have to be aware of in raising, you know, a child with autism? Yes. And one of the main things is, is that they can learn through play. And that's, that's what I loved about the, uh, the headphones, using the headphones with my grandson, because they encouraged me to do physical therapy with him. And they encouraged me to do um, just play, play with him. And so I bought some, uh, some really uh, unique activity toys that uh, are geared toward, you know, staying active and, and uh, reciprocating in, in uh, play and everything like that. But the most important part of that is, is to allow that child to, to be, to earn con or gain confidence and trust through play. And as they're playing with you, um, they're learning, 
And so if they have the headphones on too, they're learning double because they're, they're healing as well. So I'm telling you those frequencies, man, they really work. I, I would not have believed it. You know, it seemed like magic, but um, they do work. Um, and, and they're amazing. Um, so yeah, the, the play thing is very important. I played with him. I took him to um, a place here called the discovery lab that that has all kinds of scientific toys and games and things for and activities for kids to do and so anything you can do like that it's going to help them continue to grow continue to learn and and uh, learn to reciprocate with you you know do the back and forth so that later on when you ask them a question they won't say I don't know they'll say you know they'll give you an answer because they're able to process that then and they've had a bit of time to like just socialize with you in a, a normal environment where they're happy and they're just doing things they enjoy and they kind of get to associate some of that feeling with you now. Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the things I did with my grandson, I made sure to do was, you know, he was wanting to get up and and jump around while eating. And, you know, no kid wants to stay stay sitting still when their insides are just jumping you know, all over the place and their nerves are going. But um, I was able to also use the ion for that. And we would sit down and, uh, and I taught him table manners. I taught him how to, how to talk by, by laughing and joking and, you know, everything else. And it, it was just amazing uh, watch, watching him start to grow again. And uh he he has his issues were a little bit more severe than my than our children's were. Our our son was reading by age two, and he knew world ge geography by age four. And you know, but then by the time he got into like junior high, he was already burned out. You know, they were they were actually keeping him back. And that's one of the regrets regrets that I do have is I wish I had had a special school for him to go to that that would uh, you know motivate help with motivation and all of that stuff. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I want to do too. I've started a nonprofit that nonprofit, uh, can change over time. And one of the things I want to do is, is set up learning centers because all of these parents are saying, my child got kicked out of daycare and I have no place to take him. Who can take care of him? You know, who understands them? And I'm like, I do. I wish I could take them all. You know, <laughs> I would love to teach them. <laughs> so that's part of my goal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Let's talk more about your nonprofit and, you know, the things you can do now in, in your current state before you have, you know, the growth enough to handle all kinds of schooling like that. Well, basically, I'm, we're starting out just with, with the nonprofit um, gearing toward taking a funding. And then um, it's called a, it's called a different kind of dispensary. And it's because there's we're going dis to dispense anything and everything we can to help families, to help children. Um, and adults as well. I mean, they can benefit as well from these things. And so we're going to start out with the two products that I mentioned, the ION uh, liquid supplement, as well as the uh, the integrated learning systems, uh, brain harmony, uh, frequency headphones uh, program. And when we do that, we're going to either be able to deeply discount the prices for people who cannot afford them. You know, maybe they're on Medicaid or Medicare um, and, and just can't afford that kind of hit. So, um, that's what we're going to do is we're going to try to help them any way we can to, to get the products, learn how to use the products, learn how to work with their own children. And, you know, 
the love is what is going to make the difference. The love from a parent <laughs> or from someone who's who's really close to you is it makes all of the difference as far as um, how how responsive that child is going to be. Um, you know, I even use the uh, Helen Keller as an example because if her teacher hadn't had the patience and the compassion and the understanding that she had for for her she she might not have ever been discovered as who she was on the inside she was literally locked in because she couldn't see and she couldn't hear so all she had was touch and touch is so so very important and it has to be the right touch because um you know because of the nerve damage and everything else touch can be painful i have um fibromyalgia myself and i have um chronic fatigue syndrome. I've had a lifetime of chronic fatigue syndrome since I was 15 years old. And because of those things, you know, I passed down those sensitivities to my children. And so I was able to feel how they have felt, um, you know, overall. And when I realized that I haven't felt this way my whole life, but they have, oh my gosh, I mean, just this wave of empathy just literally poured over me because I just thought I had, I know I have loved my kids dearly, but I have helped them and I didn't mean to, <laughs> but I did. And so I, I just want other families not to have that same feeling. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there has to be a real problem when you you've discovered like, oh, you know, my, my child can communicate through touch. Like maybe that's their thing is that they, you know, this is how they communicate best. I have to imagine you want to engage in that. You're like, I want to use, you know, as much of this as I can. And there has to also be a threshold to that where it's like your child's largest sensory input might be touch. But if they engage with that for way too long, like now you're overstimulated, you're, you know, you're just over the top. You're like, my my ability to cope with, you know, how much inputs coming in is just ran out. <laughs> That's it. I, I'm yeah. done. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Some kids, some of these kids are hypersensitive. Some are hyposensitive and it usually goes along with boys and girls from what I understand or from what I've been able to, uh, to gather. But, uh, yeah, my, my son was hyposensitive, you know, he didn't, he didn't feel much, uh, of anything. And my daughter, uh, felt way too much. And I think she would feel pain even with her, with her clothes, her clothing had to be just right. Or she would, she would just cry and, and just scream until they were off. And so I have a lot of empathy for that now too, because my clothes hurt me as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's trauma triggered if you go through a trauma or if you go through you know a highly stressful time or whatever um that's when the pain hits and and it lingers and it, it's it's miserable for me so i know it had to have been miserable for for my daughter and and so many others and so yeah we just got to get be able to to balance those things out balance the the sensitivities out is there a good way, you know, if you're, if there's a parent out there and you're trying to, to communicate with your child where they have very limited communication abilities, right? When they're very young, is there a way to kind of see if they are overstimulated by something? I, you can usually probably tell just by the way, what, where their movements are, what they're showing as far as that goes. 
I mean, I've had people saying, you know, my my child keeps scratching his eyes and everything, you know, keeps rubbing them until they're red and and inflamed. And and, uh, I don't know what to do. I think it's stemming. And I was like, I think it's allergies. (laughs) I think he's having allergies to something. And so, you know, there are things you can do for allergies and and that's what you need to do. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, if you. You know, a lot of people I think that I've heard from, you know, parents is they're like, I cannot keep my kids dressed. Like once I got them into clothes, we're out of the diaper phase, whatever else. They're like, these kids just want to take their clothes off constantly. And you're like, is that just a kid thing? Or how do you tell when it's, you know, an overstimulation where they like, they truly cannot deal with these clothes being on? Yeah, I think it may be a little of each, you know, um, I know lots of children historically have done that, you know, they, they want to go without their clothes, but I think it also is a, a larger statement on our environments and, and how um, they affect our, our central nervous systems. And because that's, you know, that's what makes us overfeel things. You know, we have, we have overstimulated nervous systems and they, you know, we're very sensitive that way, you know, highly sensitive people are, we ended up being able to resolve a lot of that problem with my grandson just by using the headphones. Um, They seem to help a lot with nerve repair and he didn't have those same sensitivities anymore. He also didn't have the, uh, the, uh, I don't know what you would call them. They, these, these actions, these activities that would just, you know, come out of nowhere where he'd all of a sudden just have to jump, you know, and his head would hit your chin if you're near him, you know, or what have you. But uh, a lot of that stuff became calmer as he became more aware of his body in, in space. And so it it really was helpful and, and uh, relieving for him as well as us, as well as, as well as all the people around him. And uh, we also used, um, when he was here, we also used uh, essential oils certain essential oils, uh, vetiver is really, really good for, uh, for autism and for, and for the, the, you know, the comorbidities. Are there like classes or programs that can help parents and children kind of figure out, you know, what some of these reactions are that help them learn some of those like impulses and body awareness? I think there may be, um, I know there's one one place in a neighboring town um, that had had such uh, tra- it had training for parents and things like that, but it was uh, it seemed cost prohibitive at the time. And then you know they also have ABA therapy, which is is good for smaller children, but older children if they have ABA, a lot of times they end up really, really frustrated and angry because they're realizing that it's basically, they're basically just following what somebody else tells them to do. And they're not able to explore or understand who they are within themselves. You know, they're just supposed to be compliant. That's it. And so they get really, really frustrated and angry because they still can't express themselves. They're just doing what they're told to do you know, as far as being socially acceptable or, or what have you with their behavior, there need to be more accept, more accessible ways to be able to, to uh, help these kids 
and it has to be done with love. And that's one of the things that clinicians don't have for all of our children. They can't, they don't know them. So uh, that's, that's why families, you know, really, I hope will, will be encouraged to take matters into their own hands and say, this is my child and I love my child and I want the best for my child. And so this is what I'm going to do. Um, I also want to be able to hire from within my membership for my nonprofit and be able to maybe even uh, pay pay some single parents to stay at home with their children, train train with me and then help their help their own children. And then they can be equipped to go out and help other families in their communities. It would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. And excuse yeah. my my ignorance. What is ABA? Oh, I'm sorry. It's applied behavioral analysis. And it was it was uh, created in the 70s. And I'm sure it it played its part because, you know, ultimately families and parents needed their children who were out of control to be able to have some self-control. And that's that's basically what it does teach. But it teaches in such a way that that child still doesn't know who they are who they are as a soul, who are, who they are as, as a person, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the goals. I mean, I'd love to give you some time to, to talk more about, you know, what you're doing and where people can find you and, you know, some of the hopes for the future, because it sounds like this is a great program that, you know, I'd love to see up and running and lots of membership and everything else. Yes, thank you, thank you. We're we're still in the forming stages, but I have set set up the nonprofit through Open Collective Foundation, and um, it's all on my website. It's at deannhampton.com. I'm I'm just really looking forward to uh, having some people come on there. I have a section in there called Ask Deanne, and uh, individuals or companies, whoever can can get on there and fill out the form and ask me any question they want to, and I'll do my best to to give them my best answer. And uh, hopefully, I'll be able to go and and uh, you know answer some questions on on a panel somewhere or do some speaking or something like that so that i can really get the word out about what we're what we're trying to accomplish and i think now is the best time to be doing it <laughs> yes absolutely well i look forward to seeing more from you thank you again for being on the show well thank you very much you're you're a great guy <laughs> i can tell <laughs> i appreciate you saying that but yeah, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully so much more to come and, you know, we start to see you, you in more places. Yeah, that would be amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to work toward manifesting that. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. I hope this helps those of you touched by autism in some meaningful way. As always, you can reach out to me or my guests to learn more. Now past the midway point, here's our June rankings. Number one, the United States with Texas, Oregon, and Virginia, in that order, as the top states. Number two, Canada with Ontario firmly dominating the competition. Number three, the United Kingdom with England still up at the top. Number four, Egypt holding on to that place very tightly. And number five, Australia with a tie between New South Wales and Victoria. Anyway, that's it for this week. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until the next episode, please do all those things that help the show grow. 
like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing, reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media platforms if you want to reach out to me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.